Salt and Pepper had a wonderful song. It was called Let's Talk About Sex. Uh, it's actually not a wonderful song. It's a terrible song. Don't go buying it on iTunes if that's you. I'll read you out a few of the lyrics, though, because I think it's helpful for us just to introduce our topic tonight. The, the chorus goes like this. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and all the bad things. Let's talk about sex. Uh, that's how it goes. That's the chorus. You probably know that one. Most people heard that song. What could be new? Maybe a couple of us older people like me and Josh and maybe Ali, if I can include you in that crew. Um, but it's interesting, you know, this song, it starts, like it's a very catchy chorus, but this song starts with the first verse where two people are just kind of talking. They're not quite singing. And so one person says, yo, you know, because people start sentences with the word yo, yo, I don't think we should talk about this. The other person says, come on, why not? He says, well, people might understand what we're trying to say, you know. He says, no, that's a part of life. Come on, let's talk about sex. I wonder if that might be you tonight. Uh, maybe tonight you're sitting anything, oh, Steve's going to talk about sex, this is going to get awkward, uh, this is going to be weird. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be talking about this. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Uh, you might be wondering, why are we talking about it again? I mean, last week we talked about sex, didn't we? We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, we saw there about how that little group of people in first century Corinth in Greece, uh, we saw how they, they had a really low view of the body. They had a really low view of sex. Do you remember that from last week? And because they had this low view of the body and a low view of sex, what did it end up with them? How did they act? Well, uh, because they didn't value their bodies... They were just kind of giving their bodies to whoever and whenever they felt like, right? Uh, We talked about this last week. So why are we talking about it again? Why do we need to be reminded again? Well, I actually think, like salt and pepper say, uh, we as Christians, we we need to talk about sex. Uh, Because so often we are misunderstood, or we misunderstand, what God says about sex in his word. In the Bible. See, last week, I'm actually a little bit worried that you might have heard me the wrong way. Uh, You might have gone away last week and you might have heard me saying something like that sex isn't good for Christians. I hope that's not what you heard, but that's a reaction that I think some people might have had. It's actually a reaction that some of the people in Corinth had as they were having this dialogue with the Apostle Paul. Uh, You see it there in Verse 1 of chapter 7, they write to Paul and they say maybe sex isn't good for Christians. Uh, They go kind of completely the other way, you see, to what maybe our world does or what we saw the people were doing last week. And that's why we're here again, because we're going to talk about that perspective. Uh, We're going to be doing this three-week series on love, sex, marriage, singleness, relationships. Uh, It's... Not because I think it's just, you know, gets the crowd in or anything like that. It's because I think it's really important for us to understand what God is saying in this area of our life. Uh, Now, you might kind of hear that Corinthian reaction, you know, people pulling back saying, oh, maybe sex isn't good at all. Uh, And you might find that a little bit odd, a little bit hard to understand. Uh, We kind of understood last week when people were just treating sex like an appetite, if you want it, just go for it, because that's kind of what we see all the time, right? But this reaction, this kind of 
other way that we start to see in chapter 7 and verse 1, uh, you know, that at least some of the Corinthians had decided that the best way to live was not to have sex at all. Well, you know, they've become anti-sex or they think that sex is somehow bad or dirty even. Well, I actually think that this could be an issue for some of us. I mean, if you've been raised in a Christian home, if you go to church most weeks, anytime sex is mentioned, what's kind of that domineering uh, message that you hear? Don't have it, right? Don't have sex. Flee sexual immorality. Don't get caught up in the lusts of the world. That's kind of the message you hear over and over again, isn't it? And I, I just wonder, if that's all you ever hear, then maybe you might just start to think, that maybe sex isn't good for Christians. Uh, you might start to think that it's shameful, that it's dirty, something like that. Uh, and I just want to say that if that's your point of view, then that will drastically affect the way you have sex and treat sex if you do get married one day, or if you are married right now. That's what happened to the Corinthians. They had a genuine confusion about sex and its place in their lives. So what they did was they actually wrote to the Apostle Paul. They wrote him a letter. We don't have that letter. Unfortunately, we don't have that letter in front of us. But what we do have is Paul's reply to their letter, which is what Vic read for us earlier. What we see here in chapter 7 is Paul writing back to them and quoting back something that they had said. So you see there in chapter 7 and verse 1, they say, Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good, this is what they wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's their point of view. That's what some of the Corinthians are saying, you see. They've looked around, they've kind of seen the immorality in their world. Perhaps they've maybe got caught up in that Greek philosophy of the day that said that only the spirit was good and that the body was bad. So if you wanted to worship God who was spirit then that meant that anything kind of bodily or sexual in the body, then that must be bad too. Maybe they got caught up in that kind of Greek philosophy as well. But of course, when you kind of think about it, they're not alone in this, are they? Uh, throughout Christian history, in the name of religion, in Christian religion, there have been many kind of uh, attempts or people who have, who have tried to say that genuine spirituality, if you want to be a true spiritual person, if you want to be really religious, then maybe celibacy is the way to go. Maybe you need to avoid sex altogether. Today we still see it in some areas. You see Catholic priests taking vows of celibacy. We've seen monks and nuns throughout the history kind of lock themselves up in monasteries and take these vows for life. One guy who's you know really gone to the extreme is this man. His name's Origen. He was a second century church father, one of those guys. He was so convinced that sex was to be avoided that he castrated himself. Uh, now, if you're a man, you might be able to understand that that would not be an easy thing to do. But that was his thing. He was so convinced that maybe sex in the body was wrong that he would do, go extreme lengths <coughs> to try to honour God. That was his point of view. Uh, in the history of the Christian teaching, I think that that is actually another very low view of sex. 
It's a live view of the body, isn't it? Because it says that the body itself, uh, you know, it's not something that's pleasing to God. Remember last week we saw that we have a hive of the body. Why? Well, because Jesus is going to resurrect our bodies. He loves our bodies. He says they're good. Uh, they're going to last. But it's not only that. Uh, when you kind of open up your Bible, right from the very beginning, what we see is that God is not against sex at all. He is actually very much for sex. In the very opening pages of the Bible, as soon as human beings come along, what we see is that God is the inventor, he's the designer, he's the creator of sex. It's, it's God who in the very first chapter of the Bible, he tells people to have sex. I don't know if you know that command. Genesis 1 verse 28, it says this, Be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. I mean, how do you think they were going to do that if they weren't going to have sex? God says to this first married couple, Adam and Eve, go for it. Later on, you keep reading through the Bible, there's actually a whole book dedicated just to sexual expression between a husband and wife. It's called the Song of Solomon. Uh, this guy Solomon, he sings over and over about the beauty of having sex with his wife. It's a celebration of erotic love. We were talking about it in our servant meeting earlier. Just the leaders here of the sea, we get together for an hour and we were talking about how Song of Songs, you know, the Jewish, uh, in the Jewish culture, they said it shouldn't be read for, for young men who weren't quite mature enough. So if you weren't 12 or 7, I can't remember the exact age, then in the Jewish culture you weren't supposed to read that book. Uh, when you go, when you go and you read something like that, there's parts in it that when you understand Song of Songs, they really do make you blush. Uh, he talks about pomegranates and clusters of grapes, and he's not talking about fruit. It's full of metaphor, but the whole book is actually about sexual love, a man and a woman married, enjoying each other's bodies. Solomon, the writer, he summarizes what he's saying at one point by saying this. He says, eat and drink, my friends, drink your fill. You lovers, and again, he's not talking about food. He's saying that these two lovers, they're to have sex until they're satisfied. And this is God's word. This is God's word to us. And to me, this doesn't sound very much like a God who hates sex. No, it sounds like a God who encourages it, who created it, and who celebrates it in its right expression, in its right context. And that is exactly what we see tonight as we open up 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What we see tonight is Paul responding to the Corinthians who said that sex isn't good. And he says this, he says in verse 2, he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, that is because married people might have been tempted to commit adultery, he says each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The issue here that Paul's dealing with is sexual immorality, a sex outside the marriage. So what's his answer? What does he say? Well, Paul says, if you're married, have lots of sex with your spouse. Let them satisfy you. So you don't go looking for it outside of marriage and commit that kind of adultery or immorality. Paul's not saying here that just because you're tempted to sex, then you should simply go out and get married. No, instead he's speaking to married people, isn't he? He says, have 
the marriage partner you've already got. The word have there is, is a euphemism, you see, for having sex. If you flip back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you see back there in verse 1, uh, Paul was talking about a sin that was going on in the church, and he says this in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, It is actually reported among you that there is sexual, sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. The word has, have, that's used for talking about sexual relations. Having sex. And so Paul's message is this. Paul says it is good to have sex in marriage. That's where sex is good. Sex is good in marriage. It's amazing how consistent the Bible is all the way through, isn't it? It's what we saw in Genesis, what we see in, in the wisdom books. It's what Paul says in the New Testament. It's God's word through and through, throughout the whole scriptures. Sex is good in marriage. So if you're not married, don't have sex. Because it's not the place for you to have it. It's not safe for you to be having sex. Now John Dixon, you might know him as a Christian author, He's written a little book, it's called A Sneaking Suspicion. It's a great little book. And in that book, uh, he talks about the way we treat sex. And he compares it with the way we might treat our cars. It's a great little illustration. He says that if you, are, if you own an old bomb of a car like this, if you own a Datsun 180B, then you don't actually value it that much. It's not worth that much, right? It's an old Datto. Uh, and if that's, if that's what you think you have... If you don't value it very much, then how are you going to treat it? Well, you'll say to your friends, take it. Go for a drive. Test it out. It's kind of the uniculture we live in, isn't it? Our uniculture view of sex. Your body, your sex, just give it to whoever and whenever you want. It's not that valuable, is it? John goes on to say, but that's not God's view at all. Uh, your body, running with a car illustration... It's not a cheap Datsun. It's like the most precious Ferrari in the whole world. And if I'll tell you what, if you've got a brand new Ferrari in the garage, you're not going to lend that out to too many people, are you? You're going to keep it pretty safe. You know how precious it is. So you'll be very careful about who you give it to. See, not being married and not having sex doesn't mean that you're second rate. No, it means that you're valuing your body rightly, that you're treating it as precious. Regardless of what our world might say, you're not incomplete if you're not having sex. You're not second rate if you never have sex. Jesus never had sex. And you wouldn't say that he lived a second rate life, would you? I know it's a difficult topic. People will giggle. That's okay. But I think this is important. <coughs> Paul, Paul puts a very important word in there. He says, but. He says, if you're already married, or if you do get married, then what you should be doing is you should be having sex. Uh, he says to married people, see you, Zach, have fun. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> 
Paul says these words. Uh, when you look at verse 3 and 4 of 1 Corinthians 7, he goes on to spell out that if you do get married, then it is actually your responsibility in marriage to give yourself to your spouse. This is what he says. He says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. <laughs> Sorry, does that It's contagious. It is. <laughs> Let me keep reading. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What's Paul saying in these verses? He's saying that it is your duty in verse 3. He's saying that you belong together, verse 4. That's what you sign up. That's what you sign up for when you commit to marriage, to giving yourself to that other person. Oh, there's an old song that you might have heard. It says, love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. It says, this I tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Paul, I think, he, he tweaks those words just slightly. Instead of love and marriage, Paul says sex and marriage. Sex and marriage, that's what goes together. This, I tell you, brothers and sisters, you ought not have one without the other. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says we have to be very careful. Uh, we have to be careful with these words that talk about husband and wife. You can imagine how these words could be open to abuse. Uh, you can imagine that maybe a selfish husband or a selfish wife might use these verses to make demands of their spouse. But if that's what you get out of these verses, then I think we've got it completely wrong. We've misunderstood what Paul's really going on about. See, Paul's sexual ethic here, it's not about our rights, that we have the right over our wife or anything like that. No, the way it works is that it's about responsibilities. This, you see, is loving sex. Because it's not you owe me, but it's I owe you. It's not take, it's give. That's how sex works in Christian marriage, when it's done according to God's plan. See, the last thing that Paul, that Paul wants is for the husband to say to the wife or the wife to the husband, that's mine, I'm going to take it, give it to me. No, what Paul wants, what God wants, is for both husband and wife to come together unashamedly and say, this, my body, is yours, and I give it to you and you alone. And that is God's design for sex. Uh, this, is, this is how God created it. This is the most beautiful expression. It's the kind of that mutual passion that you read about in the Song of Songs. It's the selfless self-giving that you read about in Ephesians 5. This is the kind of sex that our world is looking for, but in the end can only ever dream of, because they don't get it. You know, if you just believe the magazines, the Cleos, the Cosmos, whatever it is that you like to read, uh, if you look at all the movies and the magazines, then what is sex? Sex is about whatever will satisfy you, isn't it? How you can get the most satisfaction. Uh, it's about what you can get rather than what you can give. It's all about lust rather than love. But friends, in the end, that simply doesn't work. You take a person like Marilyn Monroe, one of the great sex idols of the 20th century, 
And as she tried to have sex like the world sells it, she said this, she says, I never liked sex. I don't think I ever will. It just seems the opposite of love. See, if it's all about take rather than give, then that's not love. Now, if it's all about casual rather than commitment, then that's not love. Now, if it's all fleeting rather than faithful, then that's not love. But you see, it doesn't have to be. Uh, not if it's, God, if it's done God's way. See, God's way, the way God designed sex, is that it's an expression of self-giving love. A love that gives rather than takes. A love that asks in sex, what is best for you, your spouse, instead of what is simply best for me? It's selfless instead of selfish. And friends, if you've ever been taken advantage of sexually, then you would know that that kind of sex is simply not love. Uh, That's not God's design. God hates that kind of sex where one person takes advantage of another. He hates the way our world cheapens sex. He hates the way our world and its sexual ethic destroys people's lives with their sinful selfishness. See, there is a very particular type of sex that God is all for. He's for loving sex in marriage, where male and female are committed to loving each other and giving to each other satisfying each other with their lives. And when it's done well, when it's done according to God's plan, it's beautiful. But I can imagine you're probably sitting there. In fact, some people have already walked out (laughs) due to their giggling. Probably sitting there thinking, well, it's all nice for you, Steve, but I'm not married. I'm currently single. What about me? Uh, What does Paul say to you? Well, Keep reading through 1 Corinthians 7. Have a look there in verses 7 to 9. Firstly, he says that singleness in itself is good. Have a look there. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one from one kind and one of another. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. In verse 7, you see there, Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul says, not as a command, but as a concession, he says, I wish everyone was single like he is. Why? Well, we'll see next week that it's because the end of the world is near. Jesus could come back at any time, so there's a job to be done. We need to get on with serving God. But here, initially, Paul acknowledges that not all will be single like him. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, He does this strange kind of thing where he talks about gifts. He says that we each have our own gift from God there in verse 7. And I take that to mean that whether we are single or married, uh, whatever station of life we're actually in, that is what God has given us. That is what God has gifted us at that current time. Uh, So if that's what God has given us, then we should get on with living and loving God, living for and loving God, just where we're at, in that station of life. I don't really think Paul is saying that there is a specific gift of singleness, like some people like to talk about. Uh, Some people may be 
kind of genetically dispos- dis- have a disposition towards you know, not being attracted sexually to people. I have a friend uh, at Bible College. There was a single quarters and um, single men lived in this one room and they had this little whiteboard and they would write on this whiteboard their relationship status. So some people, some of the guys would write, you know, yeah, going on a date this Friday. Others would write, oh, whatever it was, you know, going out with Jane, something like that. One guy, he wrote all the time, Girls, uh, books, mmm. <laughs> and that's, that's Kamal. He's a 40-year-old virgin and he's perfectly happy with that. Uh, he's probably, if there is a gift of singleness, which I don't think Paul is saying here. He's very gifted. <laughs> he's very gifted. But what does Paul say here? He says, we each have been given gifts, one of one kind and one of another. That's what God has given us at the moment. The problem is so often, though, isn't it, that we just don't like the gift that God has given us. If we're single, we want to be in a relationship. If we're married, we're screaming kids at 5am and not getting any sleep. There's times when I think it would be really nice to be single. And I'd get to sleep in until at least 9 o'clock. But Paul goes on. He says, If you are not married... And if you are not controlling yourself sexually, verse 9, he says, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul here, he says, if you as a couple just can't keep your hands off each other, if you can't exercise self-control, then you should marry. Because only in marriage should you be having sex. God, you see, once again, is for sex in marriage. And the big reason that is, is because that's where safe sex happens. <coughs> sex is only safe when two people are committed to each other in faithful marriage. See, as we keep reading through these verses in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, we see that Paul speaks next about how at the very heart of marriage is commitment and faithfulness to each other. Have a look there in verse 10. He says, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord, A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Paul says, just as Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 19, that's why he says not I but the Lord, because he's quoting Jesus. He says, if you're a Christian and married, stay married. Be committed to each other. Be faithful to one another. In fact, even if things get so bad that you do separate, separate with the goal of coming back together, of reconciling. Paul's command here to the Christian couple is to commit to one another. Commit to stay married. Of course marriages will break down. But the ideal, the command here is to commit, to stay married. That's why the good wedding vows have these words. They say, I will love and cherish you till death do us part. I went to a wedding a couple of years ago that said, I will love and cherish you as long as our love shall last. I don't know if you've heard that one. You kind of hear those. I heard those words initially and I thought, how beautiful. You know, you think, oh, that's wonderful. I'll be in love forever. But then you think again and you have, well, you guys only had to think once, right? With that reaction. When's it going to end? When does 
love end? Will it end when, when the kids come along and life just gets hard? When the debts pile up? When you haven't been on a date for six weeks? Is that when you conclude that this marriage is over? We're not going to commit anymore? See, where's the commitment with, with words like that, as long as our love shall last? Where's the safety in marriage that allows you to be so vulnerable with one another if there's no commitment? See, romance is great, don't get me wrong. I love romance. Might not look that way. I love long walks on the beach, candlelit dinners, poetry, leather-bound books. But in the end, it's not romance that Paul says keeps our marriages together. It's commitment. If you do marry, you're committing. Committing to that other person, committing to love them, to love them like Jesus loves you. You see, in the end, it's Jesus' marriage to us that human marriages are simply a model of. It's his marriage to us, his commitment, that is the model that we are to imitate. His love, his forgiveness, the way he forgives, the way he serves, the way... He commits the way he gives sacrificially of himself. That's what sets the pattern for how husband and wife are to relate to one another. So if you're dating at the moment and you don't see these type of things happening in the way you relate with your boyfriend or girlfriend, then I think maybe some warning bells should be going off, shouldn't they? Uh, if he's all about uh, giving to you, giving his life to see you flourish in godliness... Uh, that's what his role as a husband is, uh, then that's good. Keep encouraging that. That should be starting now. Or is he just about taking, trying to take your body for himself? It's worth having a look at how we're going if we're in a relationship at the moment. Is he leading you in prayer, in reading God's word together? If that's not happening now, then why do you think it's just going to magically start happening when you get married? So I reckon dating is actually a really good thing. Josh and I had a conversation about dating. Well, not dating each other, of course, but you know, dating in general as an abstract, as an abstract term. And I think sometimes we date for too long. You can date for too long. We'll talk about that next week. But dating is good because it gives you time to work out if that person will actually be a good marriage partner. A couple of tips from me. I could say, I, not the Lord, on this one because this is just my reflections. I think if it's all about physical attraction, if that's what seems to be just holding you together as a couple, then that's not going to be enough. That's not God's ideal. Why? Well, firstly, because physical attraction will fade. Uh, you might be young and youthful right now, but it all starts going downhill quite soon when you get to my age. <laughs> More than that, uh, we're actually commanded to, be, to marry controlling our bodies by being, having self-control with one another, showing that we can actually be faithful to God and each other now before you get married. <coughs> so can I encourage you, don't enter into marriage with only passion and lust. Secondly, second dating tip from Steve, don't be so picky that you never end up with anyone. Uh, mm -hmm. Our movies like to say that there's one guy, a knight in shining armour. 
I want to say that if you have really good friendship with someone, then maybe that is the best ground for thinking about marrying them. Our world tells us that you can find a knight in shining armour. But there's a great quote from a book that Tim Keller has written on marriage, and this is what he says. He says, here's what it means to fall in love. It's to look at another person and to get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth. But now look at it. Kind of underlines what we're working towards in marriages and relationships, isn't it? Encouraging one another to be like Christ, to work on our godliness. See, Keller goes on to ask the question, he says, when you look at your spouse or your future spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, what do you see? Do you see a finished statue? Or do you see a wonderful block of marble that's going to become something beautiful? as you work on your godliness together. See, we're all sinners. We're all in need of becoming something better as we become more like Christ. So if you're a couple at the moment, that is your aim, to work together on your godliness, to serve God together. I love it when I kind of hear that couples get together on Christian camps. I know we've got Summit coming up. I'll give that a plug in a moment. But I like that because it means that people have got together as they've been serving God together, learning about God together, working on their godliness. That's what's actually brought them together. When I was at uni at Wagga, I did a degree before I came here. At Wagga, we didn't have, our camp wasn't called Summit in the mid-year, it was simply called Mid-Year Conference. Not very creative. Uh, But the little acronym was MYC which we used to nickname Meet Your Companion. Uh, I've been trying to think of something similar for Summit. This is what I came up with. Maybe we could work on it. Seeing ultimate marriages made in time. What do you think of that? It's not bad. Ultimately, that's why you don't come to Summit. You don't come to meet someone. You come to meet God in his word. But I think it's a good sign that if, as a couple, you are serving together, you are meeting around God's word together, You're working on godliness together. They are good signs that maybe it would be good to get married. But finally, and here's where we're going to finish up, in these last few verses, in verses 17 to 24, what Paul wants to drive home to us is that serving and loving God is what we're to be focused on. That's to be our focus. That's what's meant to be driving us, serving and loving God where we're at. Those of you who are studying education will know that a very effective uh, technique for teaching is repetition. Very effective technique for teaching is repetition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You may have noticed that that's, that's actually the technique that Paul uses in these last few verses. Paul wants to make a very big point. Have a look at these verses. Have a look there at verse 17. Verse 17, Paul says, Nevertheless, one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Verse 20, he says, Each one should remain in the situation which he was, which he was in when God called him. Verse 24, Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God called him. What's Paul's point? 
Get on with loving and serving God in the situation where you are. Serve God where you are. See, the Corinthians, their problem was that they'd been wondering whether they should change their situation in order to be more spiritual. Should we stop being married? Would that be better? Should we get married? Would that be better? What really matters, Paul says, Paul wants to say, is it's not your situation, it's not whether you're married or unmarried. You're not better off with God one way or the other. Why? Well, verse 19, he says, have a look there in your Bible, verse 19, he says, it's obeying God that counts. Keeping his commandments that counts. Verse 23, he says, it's belonging to God that gives you your value. It's Jesus' death, it's following him that should be the determining factors in our lives. Just as we saw last week, it's the place that Jesus has in your life that matters most. What matters most is that you belong to Jesus who died for you. Who died for your sin to take it all away. Jesus who loves you and says, Obey me and trust me at my word. That's what matters most. So Paul says, serve God where you are. Don't waste your days just pining for a situation that God hasn't given you yet. You know, I think this works both ways. Uh, As I watch movies, as a married man, I watch shows on TV, you walk past the front of newsagents, it seems to me that we're constantly provoked to pine for the situation that we're not in, the situation that God hasn't given us at that time. And it actually distracts us from serving God. As a married bloke, I'm often provoked to want singleness, aren't I? You watch a movie like The Hangover, and what you see is that to get married is simply to sell out on your mates. Uh, To be single, the worldly ideal is to be unattached, to have a different girl of every night of the week. But I want to say sometimes it's not just the world that pushes us in that direction. Sometimes well-meaning Christians would would think otherwise. The Christian version tells me that that as a married man, maybe I could serve God better if I was unattached. Uh, If I was single, maybe I'd have more time to devote to sermons. You'd have a better sermon because I would have been able to spend 50 hours on it instead of eight because I'm not distracted with kids and life and all those sorts of things. For women, if you're single, the magazines, the movies, the TV shows, what do they encourage you? They provoke you to want marriage, don't they? Well, maybe not marriage, but at least the wedding day and the romance. Not marriage where life gets hard and you need to learn how to forgive and love each other. But perhaps maybe the Christian version might say that you could serve more if you had a man at your side. I'm not sure if you've heard that kind of thing. But what Paul says here, Paul actually sets us free from that way of living, doesn't he? Paul shows us that we don't need to pine for some other situation. He says, serve God where you are. Live out the situation in which God has called you. Live in that moment of your life. In verse 18 to 22, Paul illustrates his point using two of the very big social divisions of his age. Uh, circumcision and slavery. He says, circumcised or not, slave or not, married or not, despite what it might feel like, despite the pressures our world puts on us, our outward situation, friends, is not what matters most. What matters most is that in our situation, we belong to Jesus. 
And he loves us. He loves us better than a spouse ever could. So he says, glorify him with your bodies by serving him. So we do that. We get on with serving Jesus. We make a commitment to not get distracted, pining for what may be, and start living for what God has given you at the moment. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that confronts us, that calls us to not just follow our world and its desires and the pleasures. Thank you that you bring a new clarity to the way that we can live life. We don't always have to be discontent and pine for something else. But we can know your love to us and that we can find joy in that. Father, help us with our lives as we learn how to live as single people, as married people, as engaged people. Help us in all all these areas to glorify you with our bodies, knowing that we were bought at a price, knowing that you are good to us. So help us to trust you at your word. Amen.